Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. They're not just telling you what positions they've got. They're telling you precisely what trades they've made. It's a little bit of a who's who of the corporate bond space. Dave, so great having you back on the uh, podcast. Thank you for joining me. I uh, couldn't couldn't wait to be here. I've got a lot to talk about. I, yeah, I, I have been looking forward to this. So uh, obviously, we're going to discuss some of the surprising successes and failures in uh, ETFs this year. And for listeners, what we decided to do here is Dave has a few, and then I have a few. But it, it, again, as I mentioned, we have no idea what the other one has. And so this should be pretty interesting. And there are no ground rules here either in that the ETF or ETFs did not have to launch this year or anything like that. This is really just... Uh, ETFs that surprised us this year, either in a good way or bad way. So, Dave, let's start with the uh, good. And probably the best way to do this is, why don't we go through your list first? Uh, we, we each have three. So why don't you give me your three? We can bat those around. I'll give you my three, and, and then we'll just go from there. So uh, surpri- well, I, surprise me. I, 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 th- I think you're going to not be happy with my choices because, honestly, what I'm talking about mostly are classes of launches that I think are really interesting, not necessarily stuff that pulled in a ton of money, because honestly, most of the stuff that's pulled in a ton of money, I think we both would have guessed would have pulled in a ton of money, right? Whether it's energy ETFs or, uh, you know, all of the Jeppy clones, there's a lot going on. But to me, I think one of the biggest surprises has been just the absolute tidal wave of actively managed equity product. Um, I mean, if you think about it, we had uh, JP Morgan's Jeppy, which y'all have talked about a million times, right? One of the great success stories in active management. But that has now spawned three copycat products, Bally, GPix, and Pappy from uh, from BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, and uh, uh, I'm blanking, Morgan Stanley. Uh, and we've also got Morgan Stanley Cap Group and Calamos launching tons of new product. Uh, I've I've just been shocked at the absolute unending cavalcade of new product launches from traditional active managers. And not all of them are getting assets. Some of them are sort of languishing at the $5 million level, but a lot of them are getting $50, $100 million. I'd be curious what your thoughts are on that class, Nate, or do you want me to go through my whole list first? No, actually, I do want to comment on that. One of the uh, narratives I've seen out there on active equity products here over the past week or two, and I think uh, Bloomberg's Eric Balchunas wrote a piece on this, is whether these are actually really active products, like traditional stock picking products, because if you look at where the success has been, it has been in a lot of the more quantitatively driven strategies where there are maybe slight tweaks to the underlying indices. So I think of somebody like Dimensional, where obviously they're they're taking some uh, factor tilts in the small cap space and value space, but it's not what you think of in terms of traditional stock picking. And I, I, I guess I'd throw it back your way. I'd be curious what you think on that. I mean, is it really, is there a path for that traditional stock picking uh, active management, or is it going to be more what we have seen from somebody like Dimensional in Avantis? And you could probably even toss some of the uh, the, the JP Morgan products in there. 
I, I don't think that the fundamental reality of markets has changed as much as some people are talking about. I think it's still very, very difficult, if not impossible, to consistently beat the market, picking a portfolio of, call it, 50 stocks from the U.S. equity market uh, with the constraints of having to run it as an ETF, meaning you're pretty much not going to go below the largest small caps because you won't be able to get the liquidity you need. Uh, I think that's just an incredibly difficult nut to crack. And we've, like, some of my failures your list here has some of the folks that have have jumped into there. I'll I'll toss LZRD. You remember that one, Nate Lizard, which was a straight up small portfolio active stock picking fund from Parabola, uh, which opened in April and closed in October, right? Which is one of the fastest round trips we've ever seen. Definitely never had a chance to to, to work. Um, but I'd point out that the long Jim Cramer ETF, which, you know, if you want to talk about active management, I suppose that's probably about as active as it gets. You have to watch TV every night to find out where your trades are going to be. Uh, that thing closed too, leaving sort of the butt end of S Jim, Slim Jim, the short version of it still alive. Uh, but I think the straight up active stock picking world is very difficult to crack. I think we're going to see more systematic product, more product that uses uh, derivatives to get their exposures uh, and doing things that, frankly, the average investor can't do on their own. Okay. So actively manage equity products. That's one of your surprising successes. Give me the other two here. Um, I, 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 there's a class of products that launched that again, cannot believe launched, which is Lux KLXY and LUXX, three competing ultra luxury brand ETFs from Tima, Crane and Roundhill respectively. None of them have pulled in significant money. I think the oldest one of these launched in March and they sort of dribbled out through the course of the year. Um, I, I sort of don't quite understand why these products came to market. We had a product that closed two years ago called Lux, L-U-X-E, uh, which dramatically underperformed. The S&P Global Lux Index, which is you know effectively the pool these folks are all fishing out of, has underperformed the S&P 500 effectively forever. So I'm, the, the case for these products coming to market right now is some sort of belief in, I don't know, late stage capitalist barbelling? I can't figure out the model. Have you played around with these products much? Have you dug under the hood here, Nate? No, I haven't. And just to be clear, so you would put these obviously in in the failure category. They their successes in the sense that they came to market. Um, to I you know I use the framing of what were my biggest surprises this year. I was very surprised to see these three products launch from three great issuers that uh, you would expect to be launching product that was going to have a real bid on the market and doesn't seem to yet. I just think with any ETF issuer out there, and I'm going to offer some free advice, some unsolicited advice. I think before you launch any product, the first question you should ask yourself is whether or not the financial advisor community would actually allocate to it. Do they want this showing up on a client statement? Is it realistic? And that's not to say that, and, and, and I'll tell you, I have, uh, with my, my failures this year, I have a couple that will fit into this category where I do think they're targeted at retail investors. So that's not to say an issuer can't find success targeting retail. But I think if you really want to have the best path you should ask yourself whether financial advisors are going to allocate to the segment. And not that there's no advisor out there that will ever allocate to a luxury uh, thematic ETF. It's just it feels so narrow. Uh, and I, I just think it, it's it's going to be difficult for any ETF like that to have success, because even if the category does really well, it's not something that cuts across multiple um, 
parts of the economy or different sectors. So like I think about artificial intelligence or robotics, you can see how that will impact a wide swath of the economy or different sectors. Whereas if the luxury segment does well, well, well great. Uh, again, you might get some great returns there, but it just doesn't, it, it just feels like such a difficult place, such a niche play. So that that's, I, I don't know if that makes sense. That's my issue when I look at ETFs like that. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, look, thematic ETFs have a place. Absolutely. And I understand that folks want to be able to, to, you know, chase headlines and express those opinions. And certainly if there's some sort of amazing run in, you know, LVMH and, uh, you know, other luxury brands, I suppose these funds will all capture some of that move. I just found it to be surprising given uh, that, you know, the average economist still thinks we're heading into a recession, which is generally not the best time to be leaning in on Bentleys. Yeah, good point. Okay, any other successes that you would highlight? And then I'll, I'll give you mine that I, I pulled up here. I, I would just go, uh, th- this is slightly old school and fewer, it, not so much about launches, um, but I think the surprising strength of things like RSP, the equal weight ETF, which has continued to pull in money all year long, um, or or even things like BKLN. These are older products that bank loans. Um, these are older products that have been on the street for a while that are a little bit nichier, and they've all been able to catch a bid this year. To me, that means advisors are being smart in thinking about their allocations. To your point, Nate, uh, if you can't figure out why an advisor is going to allocate a core, a core piece of a model portfolio to this, you probably shouldn't be in it. Yeah, and RSP, by the way, turned 20 years old this year, to, to yep. your point about these having been around for a while. Okay, I, I, I'm really excited. I want to give you my three. Now, the first one, <laughs> I, I think you're going to be disappointed. You said I might be disappointed in yours. I think you're going to be disappointed in mine because you've already touched on it, but just bear with me on this. So the, the first is JEPI, the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income yeah. ETF. But, but before you laugh... This is a surprise to me because I thought that this was really more of a 2022 story. But if you look, and, and I alluded to this at the top, it's taken in nearly $13 billion this year, even though it's underperformed the S&P 500 by, by listen to this, 10%. It's underperformed by 10%. Now, obviously, it's not oh, yeah. designed to track the S&P 500, but that's pretty substantial underperformance. And I guess I've just been surprised at the uh, follow-through or the carryover from 2022. And then I think the other surprise factor here, which you touched on, is just how many copycat products have launched this year. There are a ton of these cover call ETFs trying to ride the success of JEPI. And I'll be honest, Dave, I I think it's a bubble. I I think a bunch of these are going to close over the next few years, which I guess isn't a success story if that comes to pass. But uh, in any event, JEPI is my first surprise. Any, Any quick comments on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like the story of 2023's market performance in ETFs has been one where we learned lessons about what really awful down markets look like in 22, and we're now implementing that strategy. Because you can go almost in every asset class, the the high performer, the momentum play is not the one gathering assets. And that's a real shift. I mean, Nate, you and I have been doing this a long time. I think if I said to you, hey, here's a fund that's got a three-year track record and it's beating the S&P, we'd both think money would be piling in. There are a ton of funds like that right now that are not catching a bid, but stuff like, you know, S&P high quality, uh, right? you know, growth at a reasonable price. Those are still getting the, those kind of bids, as is all of this equity income stuff. Um, this is really mirroring a trend that I think we've seen north of the border in Canada for years, where effectively any equity allocation that's got a vibrant options market, somebody's going to launch a version of it that's got an income stream or maybe a little protection 
the Canadians have been all over this for years. We're just playing catch up. I would expect to see sector product next. So I'm, I'm sort of shocked we haven't seen like 20 or 30 products launched that are all of the various sort of tweaks on sectors and themes, all with an options overlay. It's amazing. Like as I was looking at the list of these equity income products. I'll, I'll give you another one that jumped out at me. The Yield Max Tesla Option Income Strategy ETF, ticker TSLY, that's taken in nearly a billion dollars this year. It launched less than a year ago. Now, performance-wise, if you look at that, it's up like 38 39% versus, again, about 15% on the S&P 500. So the performance is there. But those Yield Max products, I know uh, Curve has these yield premium ETFs. Yep. These do seem to be finding uh, an audience. Well, these are... I think this is part of the overall trend towards, you know, I, I've said this on the show before. I think the future of ETFs is packaged portfolios and packaged trades. What we're talking about here for the most part is packaged trades. The reason somebody's buying the option Tesla strategy is because it's more difficult to roll that yourself than it is to just put your money in the ETF ticker. You just set me up with a perfect segue into my next surprising success story when you talk about a packaged options trade. So I think you're going to like this one. The Alpha Architect one to three month box ETF. <laughs> you love the box ETF. This yeah. thing launched at the end of 2021. I don't know if you've checked this recently. It now has about 550 million in assets, and most of that has come this year. And and I'll tell you this: look, I don't ever uh, really doubt the Alpha Architect team because you're talking about some of the smartest individuals out there. But understanding box spreads is not exactly easy, and so I was skeptical that they could pull this ETF off just because I thought advisors and investors wouldn't understand the strategy. But I, I think at the end of the day, you know, you look at what this ETF is doing, it's generating a very tax efficient uh, treasury like yield. It's only 19 basis points. That is a pretty darn good recipe for success in the current rate environment. Well, and to, to your point about understand why an advisor is going to make an allocation, BOXX is a classic case where an advisor is going to make an allocation because what you're doing is saying, I'm going to give you this sort of you know short duration exposure, but I'm magically going to transform it into capital gains treatment. Like that's amazing for a financial advisor to be able to lean into that. It's a great product. It's well designed. It's relatively cheap. I'm not surprising it's catching a little bit of a bid. Yeah, that's certainly set up for a really nice longer term success in my opinion. Okay, my third ETF success story this year. Um, I try to dig a little bit deeper, so I'll be curious to see what you think about this one. I chose the Astoria U.S. Quality Kings ETF, ticker ROE. So this uh, launched in August. It's already over $60 million in assets. And I think the surprise for me is that quality ETFs, that's a pretty crowded space, right, with some huge players like QUAL, the iShares Quality ETF. And so I, I just feel like it's pretty impressive that ROE launched in August. They're already at a viable AUM level. And then I'll add to that, I'm sure you recall that uh, last year, at the very end of 2021, Axis launched PPI, which is the Axis Astoria inflation-sensitive yep. ETF. Astoria is obviously the uh, the portfolio manager on that. Now, that hasn't had a great year, but that's still around $60 million in assets. And so when I was just looking at new launches over the past couple of years, I thought it was noteworthy that Astoria – has been able to carve out a path uh, here in the ETF space. And if I were them, I would look at riding this momentum to, to see what else they can launch. Because, again, as I know you're aware, Astoria offers model portfolios, which, hey, that's a pretty good distribution model. Yeah, I, I think um, I, I, you, I wouldn't sleep on Astoria. I think that uh, John Davy and the team there do an amazing job. 
Uh, I think they're a classic case of a handful of smart people who really understand what they're doing, sticking to their knitting, right? I mean, there's a consistency to what a story is doing there. Um, it, it Look, things like PPI, they do what they say on the tin. They're not going to work in every market. Um, but that core belief that certain kinds of equity sectors are going to outperform in certain markets and that you need a little bit of a multi-asset class approach to thinking about this, I think it's really smart. I think it really resonates with advisors. I would not be surprised to see ROE uh, pull in significant assets. I'd highlight um, like our um, RBST from uh, Newfound in there as well. That's the that's the 100% bonds, 100% managed futures with you know using the appropriate leverage. Um, those are the kinds like I put them in the same category of sticking to your knitting, understanding a core idea and how to implement it well, and knowing that the, there is a market for it and that market will come to you eventually. So I, I, I'm a big fan of these kinds of products. I don't think every investor should just leap into them. There's a level of sophistication that's required to get into some of these products. Um, but I think that that's important and I think it's valuable. Yeah. And again, with Newfound and Astoria, they have that distribution through the model portfolios, which I'm fine if they want to use their own ETFs, as long as everything's properly disclosed, they're not double dipping on fees and those sorts of things. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. They obviously believe in those products, so they should want to use them in their model yep. portfolios. Um, okay. Yep. Very quickly, let's move over to the failure side. Um, you mentioned LZRD. Uh, I, I think you mentioned LGM. I mean, anything else you would point out in terms of a surprising uh, failure in ETFs. I know we're both more half glass full type people, so I, I don't want to be too pessimistic. Yeah, I, I mean, there have been a lot of closures this year, um, so it would be easy to point fingers at a whole bunch of $4 million funds that aren't around anymore. Um, honestly, I don't want to discourage that. Please, by all means, if you have a terrible $4 million fund, I would like you to close it. I'm sure Nate would as well. It makes everybody's life easier. So I feel like this has been a pretty healthy year uh, in the sense that we have flushed a lot of product that wasn't going to be able to get uh, any, any traction. So uh, I don't think of that as failure so much. I think it is rationalization. Okay, I'll give you two here. So the first one, uh, again, is another one you'll laugh at. It's going to be obvious, which is the Ether Futures ETFs. Yeah, yeah. Now, look, I, I think everyone knows I was pretty bearish on these to begin with. I, I wasn't expecting a ton of demand, but I've been a bit surprised at just how little demand there's actually been. I, I was looking this morning. These things only have about $20 million in assets overall, if you exclude BTF, the Valkyrie, Bitcoin, and Ether ETF, which already had assets in it. And quite frankly, Dave, I think these will all maybe be gone by next spring once the SEC approves spot Ether ETFs, which maybe you disagree. I expect that to happen fairly quickly after they approve spot Bitcoin ETFs, which looks like maybe, you know, January we'll get those. So I, I don't know. Any quick thoughts on Ether Futures ETFs? Uh <sighs> I, I'm not necessarily in the same boat. I, I'm, I'm not sure I agree that we're going to see spot ETH just pile on right after spot Bitcoin. I, I understand the path that, that makes that seem logical, but I think there's more foot dragging to come. Uh, it would not surprise me to see the ETH futures products kick around for a while because they're really useful hedging vehicles for folks that are doing arbitrage in the crypto space. Um, so there's an ecosystem that would really like these to be viable. Uh, and whether that ecosystem is enough to keep them trading uh, is an interesting question. I think at, you know, at $20, $30 million, uh, nobody's making any money on these things. I think you need to add a zero before these become profitable products. Um, whether we get there, I don't know. But hey, at least you can get short. <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring that up because I, I guess a, a sort of secondary surprise to this story and uh, something obviously very disappointing to me is I can't believe we have Ether Futures ETFs and inverse Ether Future ETFs before we have a spot Bitcoin ETF. I honestly never would have guessed that'd be the case. And 
I, I think we'll look back on this in a few years, and we're, and we're all going to laugh at just how ridiculous this entire. I, Nate, I don't. What are you going to move on to? We spent a couple of years worrying about non-transparent active. Now we've been hung on the Bitcoin thing for a couple of years. Like, what's next for you, Nate? You got to find another uh, hill to die on here. I know. I'm going to be. Uh, I'm going to be so bored. Okay, let me give you one other uh, surprising failure, and I'm, I'm going to dovetail off your L gem. So I'm going to lump a bunch of unrelated ETFs together. Uh, so. LGM and SGM, the, the Jim Cramer ETFs, the Nightshares ETFs, NSPY yeah. and I, uh, sorry, NIWM, and then the unusual whale subversive Republican and Democratic ETFs, ticker, tickers Cruz and Nancy. So all of these had a lot of buzz around them at launch and, and even before launch. I'm sure you saw I, I, there was a lot of debate and discussion out on Twitter, which I'm not so sure that wasn't at least partially a catalyst for some of these launching but these have all disappointed. Elgem is now closed. The Nightshares ETFs have closed. The Unusual Whales ETFs have less than $15 million in assets combined. And it wasn't so much that I was expecting uh, a ton of looks from advisors or, or anything like that, but I did think maybe the retail crowd would jump in. Uh, I, I think this is the lessons of 2022 coming back again. Uh, I think I think a lot of individual investors who were willing to make these kind of speculative plays uh, got their you-know-what handed to them in 2022, and they're not super excited to jump back into another meme play. Uh, so, you know, I, I think S-Gym is one of the only ones of the ones you listed that's still surviving, um, and, and it's it's alive. It's got, what, three, four million bucks in it, uh, so it's hard to call that a raging success. It's trailing just being short the S&P uh, by about 4%, so it's, it's basically worse than a just straight-up call against the market. Uh, but it makes for phenomenal Twitter traffic, and Matt Tuttle's a great follow. Uh, if you want to keep track of every little nuance of what Jim said last night, I can't watch Jim Cramer, so I don't get to pay any attention to that. Um, but it's it's an entertaining way to pay attention to the narrative of single stock retail, which is sort of what Jim is. Um, I, I, as an investment, I suspect it's going to hang around for a little while until uh, its performance is just too awful, and then it'll get closed. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, okay, with our remaining time, I actually want to ask you about two other ETF stories that uh, caught my attention recently, and uh, just get your quick take. So the first is the Simplify Market Neutral Equity Long Short ETF. The ticker is EQLS. And I bring this up because it was reported last week that General Electric's pension invested $100 million into this. Yeah. If you look, this ETF just launched in July. And and so my question for you is whether you think these institutional caliber strategies in an ETF wrapper are finally uh, arriving. Because I feel like we've talked about this for a long time on alt ETFs, but the traction overall has been somewhat slow to materialize. Is this a sign that things are changing with products like this? I, I think you can look at the simplify success story and answer that question, yes. I don't even think you have to look at that specific product. Um, EQLS, I think, is a great product. Um, it's one of the only true long-short market-neutral strategies out there. It's got a little patina of machine learning on it, which you know I think is probably useful in the market right now. Uh, it, it is institutional asset bait. The challenge, I think, with these types of products is I get a lot of queries from advisors who are looking at the sort of the whole Simplify lineup or some of the other competitors with sort of more interesting derivatives-based product lines, like, like the newfound products, for instance. And the challenge is that a lot of them have patterns of return that the average investor is not used to seeing. Uh, right. So like, you know, the the problem, if you will, with something like an EQLS is that 
you do ne it's never going to outperform in an up equity market. It's always going to be trailing when the S&P is up 15%. You're never going to be up 15%. That's not how it works. You're going to actually probably be up something like 8% or something like that. But you're holding it for the long term to get that negative benefit when the market then whipsaws around and throws you down 25% and you only go down two. Um, and so whether or not there's a, a non-institutional market for this tightly derived product, I don't know. Um, but I do think advisors and investors need to be careful looking at these products because they don't always do what you think. I would actually highlight um, CYA from Simplify as the case in point, um, which is just a straight up buying short term puts on the market. That is a trading tool. And if you put money in that for the long term, you should expect to lose it because that's, you know, over the very long term, just buying puts on the market is a terrible idea. It's a tactical tool. So I think there's that weird distinction. Um, and I do think that we're going to see more of these institutions products. You know, you go back a couple years, we got some of the first systematic equity products were sort of pension fund sponsored state of Arizona. And I think it was uh, EQUAL, um, QUAL um, from BlackRock. So I think we'll see more of it. That is such a great point, though, with uh, the behavioral side of the equation. We actually talk a lot about this at our firm, where as we look at products, one of the first questions is, is an investor going to be able to stomach this? Are they are they going yeah. to be able to stick with this? And is an advisor, yes, it's our job to educate the end client. And I think we do a good job of that. But if the end client, even if they understand it, if they can't stick with it, then it's not going to matter. And so I think you're right. Like you look at Simplify's lineup, they have some just unbelievable products. I mean, the thought that went into construction, uh, constructing some of these, if you look at the performance track record and, uh, you know, being uncorrelated to the to the broader market, all of those things looks phenomenal. But can the end client stick with it? That's what it comes down to. I think yeah. with something like EQLS and, and, you know, what I was mentioning, GE's pension allocating there, obviously institutional investors, they know what they're getting with this, or I think for the most part they do. So the, the challenge is can you get advisors and, and retail to understand the return patterns here? That's yeah. easier said than done. Exactly. All right. The the other story I want to ask you about quickly here is this Hashdex Bitcoin ETF filing. And I, I yeah. did promise myself we would keep the Bitcoin ETF talk to a minimum. But I, I really want to get your take on this because I think it's a unique filing where Hashdex would buy the underlying Bitcoin. They're also going to get their pricing reference uh, from the, the same regulated market, which is the CME. They're going to use what are called exchange for physical transactions to acquire uh, and dispose of the Bitcoin. And, and again, all of this is done within the CME ecosystem. Um, I should also note that this is a strategy change on an existing ETF, which is DeFi. That currently owns Bitcoin futures. So this filing would allow them to own both futures and, and physical. I thought this was pretty clever, but... It seems like the consensus take is that Hashdex should have thought of this like two years ago. And so yeah. I, I just love your hot take on this. Yeah, that's pretty much where I'm at on this as well. Um, it's very clever. And I love clever. I, I mean, I could write a whole article about this. Um, I, you know, using this feature of futures markets, which is occasionally you take delivery, right? I, I mean, surprising nobody, right? We talked a lot about this when oil went negative and what that meant. But like the one of the functions of the futures market is to actually deliver things. Uh, and so using the futures market as your delivery mechanism, I think, is clever. Uh, whether or not they're going to be able to just shove this through, I'm pretty skeptical of. 
I think, you know, if I was sitting in the SEC's chair, you have to tap dance a little bit because it is an existing product. The existing product is a fully, you know, it's it's basically a commodities pool right now. Uh, this change does require just enough manipulation of what those filings look like for the SEC to have to approve it. So it's not like issuing another ETN on an existing structure. There is an approval that's required. I am extraordinarily skeptical that anybody at the SEC is going to lift a finger to get this thing across the desk. Yeah, I believe the SEC's first decision date on this is actually November 17th. So what is that, the end of next week? So so would you just expect yeah. them to delay? Yeah, I, I think they're going to kick this. They're just going to keep kicking this thing down the road forever. Interesting. And and they don't have to. This is where the, the regulatory side of the equation is a little bit of my Achilles heel. They don't have to provide any sort of commentary on this, because if I look at this filing, I don't know what the rationale would be to uh, to not allow it. And, and so does the SEC not have to yeah. provide any sort of commentary around why they're delaying? Yeah, so it is it is hard to reject. It's hard to they're going to have to jump through. That's why I was saying I think they're going to have to jump through some hoops to kill it. Uh, but there's they absolutely can just delay, delay, delay on this. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they could push this out till well past when we get the launches from the other, you know, 12 spot Bitcoin ETF applications out there on the street. I, however, I do put this sort of in a similar category to GBTC in the sense that this is a filing that while it has its merits for being at the front of the line, it also has hair on it, right? It's not clean. Uh, and because it's not clean, I'm actually more inclined to think that something like a Bitwise or a Valkyrie who have very, very clean, simple filings is, is may get to the front of the line. Eh, who the heck knows? I mean, I'm, I'm getting a little tired of handicapping how that the end state of this is going to go. But I would bet against hashtags getting the getting the starting gun. Yeah, and we can move on. I don't. I don't want to belabor the point. I guess I just, and maybe you don't know the full answer to this, but obviously one of the primary reasons the SEC is denied spot Bitcoin ETFs is over concern of fraud and manipulation on these unregulated crypto exchanges. And so, if Hashdex is using these exchange for physical transactions on the CME, you know, I would think you're removing that um, concern from from the SEC. And so, my question is. Do they have to specifically address that? Like if they are going to delay and do they have to provide any commentary around that and say, OK, in your case, the fraud and manipulation on the underlying crypto exchanges isn't relevant here. But here's why uh, we're not going to allow this filing at this time. Frame. Whether or not we ever hear about that is a different question. Uh, whether or not they will give hashtags that information, like in a private meeting, you never you never quite know. I will be surprised if there is a written document that comes out and says we are delaying this because of x y and z they could publish a list of questions that they want hashtags to answer i think the number one is going to be okay so a year from now you're sitting here in however much percent physical bitcoin and you have a major redemption are you confident that you can do this sort of reverse physical transaction for delivery on the CME at volume? Because that's not something that really gets done frequently with this kind of a product. This is a bit novel. Um, and so because they're limiting themselves to a single exchange, I could see the SEC turning around and making that a negative, right? So to your point, maybe they solve some of the surveillance and pricing manipulation issues and they open up another can of worms on liquidity and trading. Yeah, and they do, Hashdex does address that in the uh, prospectus and that 
if they hit some of those limits where there's a concern that they're, you know, they, they own too much of the underlying, then that's why they'll invest in the futures. Uh, yeah, right. And there's like right. a toggle back and forth. But I'm, I'm just fascinated to see what happens here. I think, again, you make a good point in that if the SEC is close to allowing uh, Bitcoin ETFs just in general, why not just allow a, quote unquote, cleaner product to come to market? The, you know, the, the spot Bitcoin ETF filings from somebody like Bitwise or iShares or whoever uh, versus this. So this will be interesting to watch. Dave, just about a minute left before I let you go. I know we're going to talk much more about exchange as that event gets closer to the date, but it is only about three months away. And I just thought with yeah. the upcoming holidays and, and everything else, February 11th will be here before we know it. Are you able to provide us with a, a, a quick teaser on this yet? Like, how's the yeah, planning I'm, coming along? So my my role at Exchange is largely focused on the content and the agenda. Um, and I, I, let's just be honest. This is a big year, right? We've got a major election happening. We've got uh, armed conflict in several places around the world that the U.S. is partially tied up in. Uh, it's a big, hairy year. Uh, I think what you're going to find at Exchange when you start digging into the agenda, and we're going to be announcing more over the next sort of four to six weeks, uh, is we're trying to have some pretty serious conversations. So if you look at some of the folks that we've announced already, um, we've got folks like Amy Walter from the Cook Political Report. Um, I've been working with the Cook Political Report off and on for about 20 years when I've been doing events. It's, it, I think, inarguably the best truly nonpartisan independent analysis of the U.S. political environment. So we've got Amy coming to um, sort of give us that update there. Um, we've got Richard Haas from the Council on Foreign Relations helping kick some of this stuff off uh, to really give us some of that geopolitical perspective. Uh, I think we're going to have some really fascinating conversations. And, and really, I think the, you know, the, the theme for the conference is Blueprint for Growth. I've been thinking a lot about building. And I think the question is, how do you build in a world that feels like sand? And that's the question we're going to try to answer from building portfolios to building an advisory practice. I love it. Uh, the website is exchangeetf.com, correct? Correct. And and are you updating that iteratively, like as you add speakers and the agenda? <laughs> Pretty much continuously. We're, we're right in the hockey stick where uh, for the next couple of weeks here, you're going to see more and more announcements of new speakers, new panel sessions that folks are going to be excited about. Um, we've really leaned into our advisor council um, that's helped us build some of this agenda and make to make sure that what we're putting on stage is what advisors really want to hear. Well, I can't wait for it. Obviously, I'll be on the ground there. So hope a lot of the ETF Prime audience joins me as well. But Dave, always love chatting. This was fun this week. I like this format. Yeah, this is a great format. That was uh, Dave Nodig, financial futurist at Vetify.